Fantasy is a natural human activity. It does not destroy or even insult reason. For creative fantasy is founded on a recognition effect, but not a slavery to it. From an essay on fairy stories by J.R.R. Tolkien. I'm Nicholas Kotar, author of fantasy inspired by Slavic fairy tales and seeker after the good, the true, and the beautiful. You're listening to Fantasy for Our Time. In this podcast, I discuss classic and new fantasy media, have long and involved conversations with authors and storytellers, and explore how stories can help us all live a better, more fulfilling life. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to episode four of the podcast. Today is the first of hopefully many conversations with authors that I will sprinkle here and there amidst the solo shows. The honest truth is that I have had some really amazing conversations with authors and other creatives over the years, but they were only available as videos on YouTube. Now that I have this new podcast, the opportunity presented itself to feature these conversations for a new audience. I do have to warn you that these interviews were not done on very good audio recording equipment, so the difference in quality between the solo shows and the first few conversations may be a little stark. I hope you'll stick with me, though. Personally, I found all of these conversations very worthwhile, and I think you'll agree with me. I'm starting with a conversation from a little more than two years ago, before COVID, before all of that, uh, with the author Christopher Rocchio. Now, if you haven't heard of him, his series is called the Sun Eater series. It's far future epic science fantasy. It's a lot of words there. Uh, It's reminiscent of Dune in some ways. Uh, It's reminiscent of Gene Wolfe in other ways, but really it's his own wonderful concoction. Christopher himself has described it as exploring what Anakin Skywalker's story might be if becoming Darth Vader was the right thing to do. And it's the perfect time to go back to this conversation. Christopher's books are thick as bricks, and so the time between publication of the several volumes is long and tedious. I read book three almost two years ago now when it came out, and then I waited. Uh, But just last week, finally, book four, titled Kingdoms of Death, arrived at my doorstep on the day of publication. I've started reading it, and it's it's like talking to an old friend who inexplicably disappeared for a year and then showed up at your house with a bottle of wine and some amazing stories of his travels. In this far-reaching conversation, which was held live for an audience of my patrons on Patreon, so you will hear some Q&A at the end, uh, we talk about different things, including Christopher's publishing story and the pitfalls of the publishing industry now. Uh, By the way, for reference, uh, the stuff he's talking about in 2020 has gotten much worse now, interestingly enough. We talk about comparisons of his work to Dune and Star Wars. We talk about the evils of spoiler culture, the importance of the right kind of humanism in sci-fi and fantasy, and why transhumanism is not a good thing. And we consider the question of, uh, can lying through fiction be virtuous? Today's show is sponsored by my wonderful patrons on Patreon. They are the backbone of my work. They inspire me. They keep me creating, even when I don't really feel like it, What with the world going crazy around us as it is. If you'd like to support this show, you can join for $2 a month and get access to early live-streamed recordings of this podcast, 
which include exclusive Q&A sessions afterwards. The community also has higher tiers that include things like free ebooks, merch, and exclusive experimental short fiction written by yours truly. Visit patreon.com slash Nicholas Kotar to find out more. Now, on to today's show. Um, welcome, everybody, to our little conversation here and our next interview in my series of interviews of famous and not-so-famous authors. Today, I am very pleased and honored to have Christopher Rocchio here with me, uh, whose Sun Eater series has been such a pleasure to read over the past few months. Christopher, it's wonderful to have you here. Thank you so much for joining me. Well, thanks for having me. This will be fun. Absolutely. All right. So why don't, um, without me blathering on too much, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, both as a writer and as a human being? Uh, well, uh, as far as the writing thing goes, uh, I started when I was about uh, about eight, I guess. I was in 10th grade. I watched a lot of uh, a lot of the Batman cartoon, a lot of Star Wars when I was a kid. So my parents were pretty selective about what I could uh, I could get into. Uh, books were, of course, okay. Um, yeah. They were happy to buy me as many books and whichever book really uh, that I wanted. And um, and so uh, we would play uh, uh, we would play make believe. Uh, at recess school and um uh my friends were all dragon ball z characters but i did not know what that was so uh, uh i asked them if i could be batman and they said yeah sure we'll think about it and after a few days uh, they agreed that that was fine and so uh, while they all grew up and developed social skills i uh, i kept writing uh, and so i would write on the back of my exams sort of like tolkien but the other way around because i was a student right, right. And, uh, you know uh, and there were no hobbits um, but there were elves originally. I tried to be a fantasy writer because I was a huge, and still am a huge Tolkien fan. Yeah. Um, and, um, and so I just kept doing that. Um, and you know, I got to third grade and I threw out everything second grade me had written because he was an idiot. And I did that over and over until, um, <laughs> until, uh, about, uh, I guess junior year in college. Sorry. That was me. Um, Junior in college, I sat down and decided I was actually going to do it. Uh, I went to school to NC State, North Carolina State, and um, we had a professor there named John Kessel who was won a couple of Nebula awards. And oh, wow. yeah, it was a real, real nice guy, and he was really generous. He helped me write my query letter, these sorts of things, and he gave me some pointers on how to get into the industry. Um, and I also, uh, quite by accident, I went to NC State because they have this uh, English internship program. That had a really good job placement rate, which for an English major is a is a is a hot commodity. So, yes. uh, I <laughs> uh, I think I'm the only English major I've met who's actually doing something with books. Because um, I, in addition to writing, <laughs> this, this really damning critique of the uh, university system. Um, oh yes, oh yes, indeed. Uh, but I, I backed into uh, interning for Bain Books, which is another science fiction publisher. Um, so in addition to writing, I, uh, I work with writers like David Weber and Lois Bujold and Larry Korea and, and stuff. And I don't work oh, on their cool. directly, um, but I'll do a lot of uh, marketing promo and then some stuff with short story anthologies sort of thing. Um, and so I, I spend most of my time doing that when I'm not writing. So the, um, the Bane job, that's... Uh... Uh, tell us a little bit about that. I, I think it would be interesting for people to get the sort of an inside view of what modern publishing is like, because there's a lot of conflicting information out there about, you know, the death of publishing this and the rise oh of... Oh my gosh. <laughs> if, if I had a nickel for every time I saw an indie writer tell me that publishing was dead, 
and then proceed to go on uh, uh, a lecture about why and yeah. what they believed the issue was, I could retire. Um, <laughs> and, and that's not to say that there aren't problems with the publishing industry. There are problems with any industry. There are problems with the indie side of things as well. Um, yeah. But uh, what I do for Bain, uh, I was hired because I am a millennial and I knew how to use Twitter. And they didn't have anyone who knew how to do that. Uh, so I'd been, I'd been interning with them. And uh, they were like, so, uh, you know, Megan does our social media, right? I'm like, oh, yeah. I'm like, well, um, what if you did it instead? Because she, she doesn't know how to do it. And uh, <laughs> we don't know if this is working out. So they, uh, they traded me for Megan. And so I started out doing most of our social media stuff, which I still do. And that kind of makes up the, the backbone of, of, of what I do. I schedule posts and I answer uh, community questions, you know. Not so much responding to comments, mostly you just let those ride. But if, you know, people come to us with problems, do a lot of customer support stuff. Where I okay. started, but I, I've moved slowly into uh, most of what I do. Uh, a lot of what I do now is uh, we do these reprint anthologies, um, where uh, we'll look through the old pulp magazines. Because a guy who works with us called uh, Hank Davis, and he uh, Hank's Hank's kind of amazing. You can ask him what month the story came out and he could tell you, Oh, it was June in 1952 in, uh, in, uh, astounding or whichever, you know, no way. Wow. Uh, even well, he had uh, some health trouble and he couldn't speak for a little while and he couldn't tell you, but he would go pull it off the shelf. It was amazing. And wow. so we'll go through and put these collections together. They're usually thematized. We did one that was all pioneering stories. Right. Mm -hmm. And, um, so we reprinted a Paul Anderson story that had never been reprinted. Oh, cool. So we'll wow. Dig these things up sometimes. And, and we, Tony, my boss, Tony Weisskopf, feels a bit of a cultural duty of care to keep these things in print, which I think is awesome. Um, so I've done a few of those. Um, and then I'll, I'll do a lot of work, too, um, with uh, like author tours, making sure the materials get where they need to be uh, and that the authors have, you know, all the pr those things are all promoted, too, right? and things like that. But as far as a lot of the misconceptions, I mean, Publishing, I don't think so much is dying as it is spreading out, and that's making it harder for any individual agency, be that a, a, an author or a publishing company even, um, to command market share the way they did in the 70s. That's um, sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, there, there are over a million, maybe a million and a half books published last year, which yeah. is an insane amount. Um, there's too much culture uh, for anyone to really have a grip on it anymore. Uh, I like to compare it to, to heavy metal music because uh, I'm, I'm into that. And there are so many subgenres of metal that, that the fans can't even agree on what's good anymore. And I think that publishing is in exactly the same space because you'll get people who like power metal who will not speak to thrash metal fans. Um, and it's completely arcane to people on the outside. And, and honestly, it's arcane to me too. Um, but there's just, there's just too much. Um, and it's, it, it, it's true too, because publishing companies will get on a kick where they'll think, "Hey," and this is very clear in YA, right? They'll be like, "Oh, well, dystopian stories with uh, young female protagonists are all in now. Let's put all of our chips on that for five years," mm -hmm. um, and they'll go through this phase and they'll make a lot of money, you know, doing that. Um, not everyone gets to be the Hunger Games, but you might get to be Divergent, and they can meet their their bottom lines that way. But it ends up with these really sort of ossified um, catalogs. Because everyone's doing the same sort of thing, and now, and, and it's okay to have a niche, right? Like Bane does a lot of military science fiction, yeah. and we do just fine doing that. And you know, obviously Harlequin does nothing but romance, and that's a very large niche. Um, but you see that uh, science fiction publishing is such a small field. 
Um, you know, there really are, I think, you know, they're, they're probably only 40, 50 editorial jobs, um, in traditional publishing in wow. the language, maybe it's certainly less than a hundred. I, uh, I didn't realize that. That's crazy. Well, wow. <laughs> at least, at least at the, 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 the higher levels, right. Anyone sure. who's owned by, you know, Penguin, it might be a little bit more than that, but it's certainly not in the thousands. Um, everybody knows each other, right? Everybody goes to the same parties and that in, 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 when you have any system that operates that way, things get very close. And I think that there are a lot of, um, writers, um, who feel burned by that system and understandably, um, because there, there ends up not being space for, uh, a lot of, a lot of things. I think ironically, cause the, the, you know, the watchword is diversity. I think there's a, a real yeah. lack of. In yeah. terms of content that's being generated, yes, yes. You know, like it I, is I have not, yeah, I've not seen a YA fantasy novel in years now that's not about a rebellious princess. Right, exactly. Um, oh, oh, yeah. yeah, who who wants to be an assassin for some for some unknown reason? <laughs> yeah, I, you know, I don't, I, I don't know. Like any any one of those books is probably fine, right? Or great, even. I, I don't, I don't know. But all of them, you know, I, I remember I got in trouble because I was asking for my uh, my well, it's basically my nephew, but my cousin. Um, you know, I was like, do we have any YA books for boys? And this, this lady on Twitter was upset with me. And like, I literally cannot find one uh, that's not Rick Riordan and he's read all of those. Right, right. Well, okay, so and, that being the case, how how did you get the Sun Eater even considered? Because, I, you know, there are some things about it that are familiar, but the familiarity extends backwards. It's not really similar to a lot of stuff that's being published now. When I when I picked it up, I immediately started thinking Dune and Gene Wolfe. Those two names are not ones that are being talked about in editorial rooms right now, right? So how no, do you not, not editorial rooms? <laughs> um, I don't rightly know. Uh, I owe the publication to a lady called Sarah Guan. Sarah's with uh, Orbit now. Uh, a lovely person. Uh, she uh, she worked for Daw and then she moved on me about uh, about eight months and she got a better job offer. And um, we. Uh, so at the end of my my whole rewriting things through grade school story, I yeah. uh, I managed to get an agent after about ten months in uh, 20, 2015, my last year in school. So I graduated the day before Force Awakens came out, um, and so I all through that year had been trying to get an agent. I landed one in November finally. Um, her name is uh, Sean McCarthy. She uh, she represents uh, like James S A Corey, Eric Flint. Oh, okay, cool. Uh, the writers, wow. Sean is awesome, and um, and and she's been she's been in the industry a long time. She was editor for Asimov's magazine in I think like eighty one. Nice. You know, um, great, great agent. Um, and uh, we sat on it over the holidays because no one in publishing works from like Thanksgiving until yesterday, uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, myself included, uh, and uh. and. Um, and, and, and Shauna liked it because it was, um, you know, it, it, I mean, it, it, it speaks to those older sort of science fiction stories, but it, yeah. um, but and no one had really been doing that. And she thought, Hey, like this, you know, this is a new, this is a new direction. And we shopped it around to a bunch of, a bunch of publishers, uh, Bain included. Um, yeah. but Daw, uh, jumped on it. Uh, they were going to give me then a four book deal. It's five now. Um, and, um, hardcover and they were gonna they were gonna roll it all out it was a great deal uh, because sarah read the book overnight and she just loved it now the version of the book that sarah read was about half as long um, for those uh, for those of you who have read it um uh 
it uh, right after Hadrian leaves home, he leaves Delos. Everything after that got thrown out and rewritten because Sarah told me, I love your book, but I have I have some problems with it. She gave me the list and, you know, not worth getting into what they were. And I looked at them like, Sarah, um, if I do this, I have to rewrite the book. She's like, you'll be fine. So I rewrote everything after that and about double the length because there was a bunch of stuff I wanted to put in the book. And traditional publishing is not going to take a 240,000 word novel from a new writer because right. Barnes and Noble allocates uh, stock by inches right on, on the shelf. Yeah. And so they can't, they're not going to take 10 of my book because it's huge and, and they can afford to do that with George R. R. Martin because those will sell. Um, yeah. uh, but uh, uh, Sarah was like, look, make it as long as it needs to be. She was uh, real supportive. And I did, I doubled the length of the book, uh, a bunch of stuff. Falca was not in it at all. Uh, she was going to be, oh, interesting. Okay. She's going to be in book two. Uh, he wasn't a gladiator. He was a chattel slave in that first uh, in that oh, first draft, and so we 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 judged it up a little bit and um and changed some things around. But as far as um you know, its difference, I don't know what exactly about it uh, leaped out to Sarah. Maybe it was the prose because people have compared it to Patrick Rothfuss, and there were some deliberate nods to Patrick Rothfuss because I particularly liked the name of the wind. The second one has dropped off for me. Um, but I, I really, I really like his prose style in particular, and and I am a, I'm a pretty elusive writer. Like I'll I'll reference, um, you know, everything from you know the Epic of Gilgamesh to whatever came out yesterday. Everything's right. fair, fair game, um, because it is all to an extent. It's all one story, right? We're all trying to articulate some deeper meaning, and so it's all on the table. That's why I wanted to write science fiction, not fantasy, because yeah. I can't make um, biblical illusions in a secondary world fantasy novel because they don't have that text. Oh, interesting. Okay. Wow. Um, and I wanted to be able to, to reference these things. And so there are Easter eggs to, to Rothfuss. And I, I um, although I didn't actually choose to write first person because of him, um, I chose to write first person because of an old YA series by DJ McHale called Pendragon, which is nothing to do with Arthur. Um, oh, interesting. And I thought uh, I did first person because you can make uh, the whole text characterization. So all the, the narr- all the narration goes to building who your narrator is. Yeah. Um, and I I feel like that's a lot uh, uh, there's a lot less wasted space um, when you do that. If that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. Um, no, that really does make sense. And we'll talk a little bit more about several of the things that you mentioned. Um, I want to get more deep into into some of those things. Right. Um, but you're already talking about um, stories having power and about all of us t- telling pretty much the same story in different ways or accessing the power of the old stories so obviously you understand um as many people don't that there is a kind of storytelling structure that we as humans keep returning to again and again um now is there something is there a story is there an experience in your early life where you felt in a way that you remember that stories have power or is it something that was just inside you from the beginning well i learned it badly i think because i remember um, I remember lying a lot when I was a kid because I, I have two younger brothers, not that much younger than me. And, you know, when you have siblings, get in trouble. And I, I learned that if I was convincing, I could get out of trouble. And that's a terrible way to learn. Um, and and I, I've gotten, I've mostly gotten away from doing that sort of thing. I, I try not to. But when you, when you learn that, that uh, ideas have power on their own, that's a pretty powerful way to learn that ideas have have power on their own. Yeah. It's a, uh, 
the bad way to do it. You know, it's yeah. Like yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Plato would not approve. No, um, you're not. <laughs> and, and neither do I. But, you know, when you're four, right, everyone, I haven't met a lot of virtuous four-year-olds. Um, it's true. You know, and <laughs> and so I, I think that was part of it, too. And, and, and it's weird, right, because people talk about fiction and they talk about fictional stories like they are true. Yeah. You know? and, and they are. Uh, but they're not, you know, they're not true the way that you know, the Richard Dawkinses of the world think that things are true, right. you know, because there, there are other, there's that, that great Jonathan Paggio, because we're talking about him, uh, video about Santa Claus, where he's like, of course Santa's real. Um, because, you know, to all of those kids, he totally is. And, and all the parents who were giving out gifts are participating in the spirit of Santa Claus. And when you tell stories, you're, you're, you're doing the same thing. You're pointing towards uh, towards these structures. And I think I learned to do that initially, um, like I say, by manipulating. Because <laughs> um, that is what I'm doing, it's right? Okay. As, long, as, long as, as long as it eventually comes out to, uh, to doing it for proper good reasons, for, for reasons of virtue. <laughs> I hope so. You know, but like everybody who reads the book knows it's not real, with the exception of certain Harry Potter fans. Um, right. You know, um, you know, they, they open the book and they, they expect that I'm going to lie to them. I just hope I can tell the truth while doing it. Uh, well, that, I, I think I think you I think more people than you realize accept the the fact that truth and facts are not the same thing, and, I hope so. and uh, you know that truth is a lot more interesting than straight up facts. So don't shortchange yourself. I'm sure I'm sure that uh, that when people are reading your stories, they're they're getting it. But here's something I wanted to to talk about specifically um, in your series. Uh, the emphasis that you you put as an especial emphasis, like you already suggested, on the familiar. And I found this to be really interesting. I talked about this in my review last, uh, about two weeks ago when I reviewed your books um, here on, for my YouTube channel. Uh, and I, I was specifically struck by the contrast with Dune, which is sort of the, you know, the go-to far future fantasy, uh, especially for those who aren't hard, hardcore sci-fi fans. Um, but in Dune, the, the world is... Uh, the world of Dune is so far removed from the reality of our own times or the reality of, of class of the classical world that it might as well be fantasy. Um, you know, humans have evolved to, to, to such odd and, and interesting and um, extremes that there's, it's almost like the author seems to suggest that there's no need to, to remember, uh, to have any sort of collective memory of the past. And yet you quote Shakespeare and you and you quote the classics, even though your story is set 20,000 years in the future. Was there any specific reason why you did that? Yeah. So there's a bit in Dune Messiah where Paul references Genghis Khan and Hitler by name. And there are a couple other references like that um, throughout that book. And I can't remember the more specific. I think Paul has a seashell um, in his bedroom that came from Earth. And it's the only thing from Earth ex until the Van Gogh painting is introduced in like book five. Um, yeah. And that same Van Gogh painting appears in, in book two uh, in Howling Dark um, as a, as okay, a cool. uh, cottage is a quarter deal. Just because, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to cite my sources. Yes. <laughs> and, um, and those are moments where Frank actually touches on the connection between Paul's universe and ours make it stronger. Um, yeah. And I wish he had done more of it. Yes. And, and I, I like that you said the contrast with Dune because I get reamed by people from time to time for being too like Dune. And I don't think that they're no, it's not. paying it's attention not. because no, no, no. 
Hadrian is not Paul because Paul is uh, an anti, it's just anachronistic, but he's the opposite of Luke Skywalker until yes. the new movies. He, you know, Luke was an affirmative hero who, who, yeah. who did good. And Paul is a hero, but his actions bring catastrophe. And I wanted to and see if failed. I could do this. Yeah, and, he, and he did fail ultimately, right? And, and Leto failed, but Leto's failing was the point. And Dune is weird by the end. Um, it is. <laughs> I, really, I really like God Emperor of Dune, but it's, it's yeah. bizarre. Um, it is and um, but Paul fails, and I wanted to see if there was a third step here. So Hadrian definitely commits a catastrophe, and I want to see if some good can come out of that. Now that's flirting with ends justifying means. Yes, but I you know I want to see if there is a difference that can be drawn out there, and I, I don't know if the answer is yes, but uh, the writing is an experiment to an extent. So do you um, do you see the end? Do you know where this is going to go? I mean, obviously, Gadadin yeah. is, is, it's clear what Gadadin is, but in terms of the, the possible good that can come out of it, do you see it for yourself already? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and very simply, I mean, he, he gets on this in book two in particular. The good is, is that people are still around. Um, yeah. I'm always bothered by post uh, and transhumanism uh, in, yeah. in science fiction. I don't see the point in living in a world with no people. Um, mm -hmm. Or I especially don't see a point telling stories with no people in it. I love Ian Banks, but I do not like the books where it's just robots. Um, yeah. That's why I like Use of Weapons uh, so much. I think it's his best book because it is so human um, compared to all of the other ones. Now it's cool talking about inhuman things, but yeah. you know Cthulhu is only frightening in contrast. Um, and and every and everything that's horrible is is only horrible in contrast. And and so any of these futures that Scrap, scratch humanity out, I think, are, are bad by, uh, by default. And so any future that protects humanity, I think, is at least a little good. At least I hope it will be. Yeah, no, it's fantastic. So this, the framing device, right, of you know, the, the, wise, the wizened and wise, hopefully, old man who has committed a, a terrible atrocity, or at least he tells us that he has. We don't know. We haven't seen it yet. Um, it's a really fascinating device because it allows him the freedom to editorialize constantly. Now, I'm curious why you made that choice, because I imagine that people told you that it was a dangerous thing to do to allow your um, far future narrator to encroach on the reality of your present narrator. How did you convince your editor, or how did you convince yourself to allow Hadrian, the old, you know, the thousand-year-old Hadrian, to encroach on the world of, of Hadrian the Young? Because I think it's brilliant. It, it's one of the best parts of the book. Well, thank you. I, um, I don't rightly know. I think the best answer, most of my answers are always like, I have to work backwards to find out why I did something. And I, I, I think what it is, is I hate spoiler culture. Um, <laughs> I, I thought about this a lot because there was a bit when uh, the last Avengers movie came out where the directors came on Good Morning America and declared that no one was to talk about the movie. And yeah. I, I was like, well, who are you, Joe? Like, uh, I'm going to watch your, your superhero movie and I will talk to people about it. And if yeah. I happen to like, let slip that star Lord is in this one. Um, you know, I'm sorry. And so I, 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 I run into this every time I go to see a movie, like I want to talk about it. And invariably someone in the room will be like, well, I don't want to, you know, yeah, you can't, you have to leave. And it bothers me. So I wrote a story with the ending on page one. At least yeah. that's part of it, because there is, you know, there are more important things yeah. in a story than what happens. 
Um, why and how and like everybody always says that cliche about the the journey being more important than the destination but they seem not to think that the minute they get in a movie theater or the minute they open a book and by taking that off the table i thought maybe i can get people to think about the rest of this and i think that's why i did it um but you're right there are a couple people there are some readers who um you know i I guess i i will end up spoiling this if i say but they'll They'll say things like, oh, well, it's written in first person. So we know, you know, at least that he lives and, you know, we know all these other things. And I always laugh when people make these calls because right. I, I'm aware of all of those things people are going to say. So, yeah. um, you know, sorry to anyone who. <laughs> no, it's, it's what I mean. So I've had I've had only a few experiences where I've picked up a book that. Um, that someone has recommended or that the cover is interesting or something along those lines where the author is unknown to me and where I've started reading and the writing has hooked me so much that 40 pages later, I'm still standing there. Like I had, a, I had, a, I have a story where I was traveling from somewhere. I can't remember where, but I was in London Heathrow in the, in the transit terminal and they had a bookshop and I had, I had heard the name Gene Wolf before. Um, and I had meant to read him at some point and, um, but I had n- I'd never seen him in a bookstore, so I started looking for him, and then I saw this really awful uh, British cover for for The Night, the book one of the Night Wizard <laughs> series. It was awful, just horrifying cover. Uh, but I'm like, okay, this was recommended to me, and I opened it up, and I started to read it. And literally, I had my really heavy backpack on, and around page 40, I look at my clock, it's 45 minutes have passed, and I'm still standing there in the bookshop reading. And your first two pages did that for me. Now, it's partially because... Um, I was like, wait a minute, is what he doing, is he taking Severian and flipping him around? Is he start? Is he starting with the good in the childhood and, and turning it into something, and turning uh, H- Hadrian into an anti-Severian at the end? Were you, think, were you thinking at all about Gene Wolfe when you were writing? No. So I have a bizarre relationship with that book. I have owned a copy since I was 12, uh-huh. and I never started it. Uh, I was aware of the, you know, the, the the cover copy. I knew the basic premise. I knew torturers, far future, swords, spaceships, kind. You know, I had no idea what it was like. Um, I actually, the really the ironic part is, I didn't read it because it was first person. And when until I got a little further along and read some other books, I hated first person uh, oh, when sure. I was a kid because I just I was uh, I, I was so didactic. I was like, if it doesn't sound like Tolkien, I'm not interested. And it was very different. And so I was aware of the book, but I didn't read it until after I had gotten my agent and was revising um, Empire of Silence, which was um, exactly the right time or the wrong time, depending on who you asked to 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 read it. Uh, Because if I read it sooner, I would never uh, I would never have tried because it's that good. Uh, And if I'd read it. Um, later, it wouldn't have had the impact that it did. And like with Rossus, there are obviously there are passages and there are word uses that are deliberate references because I do want people to think about Severian and about Wolf when I when I'm writing this book. But Severian too, um, Severian's troubling, and I don't know how to square in with my my Luke Paul Hadrian sort of equation in my head. Yeah, yeah um, he's outside of it all somehow. <laughs> yeah, he's he's so difficult because. Well, because he is a bad man trying to be good, right? Which I think he says one or two times. Yeah. And, and, and he's also very, a liar. 
Right. Yeah. And, and, and but he does accomplish. Um, he does. He does save. He does save the world at the end by completely annihilating it. And I still don't know what to make of Earth of the New Sun. Yeah, um, I'm not. I'm not crazy about that book. To be honest, I, I don't. I, I thought it was fascinating. Um, it's. Um, it gave me a lot of answers and it has a lot of really cool ideas in it. But I don't know what it's saying. Yeah. Um, and so it really it baffles me. But I didn't think about him as an anti-Severian in any particular way. Severian came too late to the game to really uh, alter Hadrian's trajectory. The one that people don't talk about um, at all that was an influence on who Hadrian is is actually Ozymandias from, uh, from Watchmen, which I also don't know what to make of. Um, and I don't think Alan Moore knows what to make of because frankly, and I'm going to get in trouble for saying this, but I don't think Alan Moore is as bright as he thinks he is. Um, I don't think Alan Moore's watching, so it's okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't think he is either. I don't think he has a computer. Um, <laughs> That's right. That's right. But uh, I, I, I just, I don't, I don't think it says all the things he means for it to say. Because you come, you, you look at Watchmen fans, and they love Rorschach, and I'm sure that Alan Moore doesn't. Yeah. And so I don't think, I, I think in the T.S. Eliot sense of the phrase, I think Watchmen's an artistic failure because it doesn't communicate what I think the author's intent might be. And I may be wrong about what the intent was, yeah. but I, I, I always, I really liked the Zack Snyder movie because I was that kid. Mm -hmm. um, and I liked Matthew Good's performance and I liked the Alexander the Great references and, and the, the Egyptian iconography and all of that. And, and it was yeah. just, it was, it, it was so, the character's so attractive for all those reasons, even though he's definitely wrong. Yeah. Um, and that's the one thing I know about Watchmen is that Ozymandias is wrong. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I wanted to except, figure out. Except, except I don't know. I mean, how the, the movie ends in such a, such a strange way with the you know with the revelation of the of Rorschach's diary that it seems to undercut the whole point of the entire movie that, that happens before it. So That's one, the one so thing that I didn't like, yeah. uh, you know, I, I and I needed and you really need to work that out because Rorschach is this you know we'd call him alt right if it were written today, right? Yeah. And, but he is the he's the vector by which truth reveals itself, right? Mm -hmm. And. I either Alan Moore doesn't put a great emphasis on truth, which I think is probably true, despite V for Vendetta existing. Um, there's also, like, I just don't know what he thinks about anything, um, which either means he's brilliant or an idiot. I don't, I don't know which, which is true. This is the problem with, with this sort of uh, choice of storytelling, right? So we're talking about how the best kinds of stories tend to, tend to repeat tropes or tend to follow along certain lines. And of course that invites subversion and, the, I'm not suggesting that a subverted version of the hero's journey or a you know a depressing, uh, ultimately sad or ultimately tragic view of the world is not possible. But if you do the nihilism purely for the sake of the nihilism, then you're not going to get very far. And yeah. you're only going to appeal to a certain kind of person who thinks he sees or she sees some depth in something that is ultimately you know sound and fury signifying nothing. So, yeah, I, yeah, it's like a clown with one trick, and <laughs> yes, and and it's great if you're young enough to have not seen the trick a lot. Um, and I don't, I don't know the nihilism thing. Really, like I was never that. Like, despite like I'm still wearing all black. Like I was sort of a like a goth emo kid, and it it never like that never made sense to me. Because clearly it matters, right? Like people hurt and that at least matters um, to them. 
So like, of course it's not meaningless. I just don't, I don't know. But, um, but Ozymandias, at least uh, aesthetically, was, was an influence on the character too. And I don't, um, I don't know the extent to which um, his influence can, you know, really be factored in here beyond the, beyond the aesthetics. Um, but he's worth, he's worth mentioning. Um, we do have a question. Um, yeah, it, this is a question for both of us and says, I believe that you both alluded to the biblical stories be, being not necessarily factual, but that their meaning is not wrapped up in any historical reality. If you believe that the biblical stories were in fact historical in the same way that World War II is historical, would this change your perspective on the importance of literature, the imagination? Um, why don't you give a shot and then I'll answer it as well, because I have plenty of thoughts on that. Well, oh gosh, this is so complicated. I am... Um, <laughs> A good question. Thank you. I um I don't necessarily think that they're not historical. Like I, you know, I, especially the New Testament stuff's clearly grounded in events. And I think actually we found some archaeological references to David recently, um, like for the first time, which was a big deal. Um, and so like clearly there are there are things here. I don't know uh, about. I, I I wouldn't take the seven days thing in Genesis necessarily literally. Um. Um. But uh, but I do think that uh, that there's that they're they're real um, in the sense that they describe actual realities. I, I was hugely influenced by Jordan Peterson um, because when I was an emo teenager, I was one of those Richard Dawkins people. After I'd been I've been raised Catholic, um, and as one does when one grows up, one either embraces what your parents give you or you run away from it. Um, because they make you get up at seven o'clock on Sunday. Uh, and I do think that's why a lot of American uh, Christians become atheists. If they didn't start that way is because just too early Sunday morning. <laughs> um, it's too early. Um, and uh, not anymore. That's when I get up, but it was when I was a right. and, and, and so like, I literally, like I had dinner with Richard Dawkins when I was in school. Um, mm. and I was like, I was all in on that. And Jordan Peterson's, uh, lecture series on Genesis was so, was, so interesting to me because at minimum these traditions are true in that they describe a pattern of relationships between uh, people and between consciousness and reality. And that at least is definitely, definitely true. And I'm still in this weird place where like I, I go to church and I, I, um, I, I call myself Catholic, but I still struggle with, with what believe means. And, and I have this really difficult time with it. And so I really have a hard time with the question because um, obviously if, if I was certain that these stories were um, literally true the way that straw men mean when they say literally true, um, then that would change my relationship to myth because, um, because, because it would have to. Um, well, it's, it's interesting that you say that because uh, I think Tolkien would disagree with you on that because, um, you know, his in in his essay on fairy stories, uh, he says something that's really quite radical and not a lot of people um, comment on it and not a lot of people make make the connection. But uh, Tolkien, being a, a strong Catholic, definitely believed in the absolute historicity of both Old and New Testament. There's there's yes. no doubt about that. Now, he was a writer of, of the literature of the imagination, and he did not write allegory like C.S. Lewis did, right? So right. for him, literature of the imagination still has a very important role in spite of the fact that he treats 
the sacred scripture, the Christian sacred scripture as literally true. So what's going on then? Um, and what, what he says, and I think this is a really interesting idea. And um, he's, he says that all of that, all of those structures, all those storytelling structures that appear in myth, all of the, um, all of that, uh, deep resonance stuff that we feel when we read the Iliad, uh, the Epic of Gilgamesh, they're all centered and they all come true in what he calls the true myth in the in the New Testament story of the coming of Christ and the the hero's journey structure of Christ's life, death, and resurrection. So for for Tolkien, literature of the imagination is even more important because of the literal truth of. And the historicity of scripture, which is I, I, I totally get that. My only problem is that um, I, I there are some specific details, um, like for example, uh, and, and I don't want to do the old. I, I did. I'm saying I, I struggle with this sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. That I, you know, <laughs> I'm not like, trying to put you on the spot, by the way. <laughs> but like, I, I'm unfamiliar with any Roman practice whereby people had to go back to their hometown to be counted. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I, I have never seen a census operate that way. And I am a classic student. I've never heard of that being done. Now I may be mistaken. I may not, I may just be a bad classic student, but look, things like, like that, like I just, I don't, I don't see any physical record of. And, right. and so I struggle with now, now that, that any single detail in the story might not be true. Does not mean the story is not true. Right. Um, you know, it may be that, you know, um, someone, something was mis uh misunderstood right human beings are an imperfect uh you know mechanism for revelation you know maybe yes and um, storytelling and, and <laughs> storytelling gosh our spin on everything <laughs> but the the rest of that i i do agree with right i do think that it is all one story and that these i was just watching I was watching pajo again today where he's talking about alexander um ascending into the heavens right and and how uh, all the medieval versions of this had a voice telling him to go back right because right. humanity can't actually encapsulate that that total thing. So the, the yeah, the sort of uh, baptizing of these old pagan traditions um, mm-hmm. was something I'm way more uh, sympathetic to than all the people who are like, oh, it had a pagan in it. Let's never read that again. Um, exactly. Yes. Because these stories are so important, and they do. Uh, you know, there is virtue. There are virtuous pagans, right? You know, three of the worthies were pagans. Um, you know, in medieval tradition, and and. So there is all this stuff that's pointing towards that deeper truth. And I think that's true today. I think that the commonalities that people like to draw between, um, especially like the Eightfold Path and the Imitation of Christ, right? Um, and the parallels you draw between both of those and the hero's journey, even, uh, I think are, are all pointing at a deeper underlying metaphysical reality. Um, I just get hung up on whether or not, um, you know, there was literally you know, a fifth day on which X happened. And, right, and, right. and no, no, and, of course. Of course. Yeah. yeah. It's and, just, and but the, the principle remains the same. I think the, what's very interesting about papaya salad, sorry, I, that's your name. <laughs> uh, about the question uh, is that there is, I think a lot of people assume that if, if you don't see the possibility of the historicity of the scripture, um, then you're going to go whole hog into the whole myth thing. While if you do even allow the, allow the, just the possibility of any of it being historical, then you're automatically going to discount the literature of the imagination as useless because all you need then is fact. And there are some people that do that. There are some some believers who are like, don't read any fiction because it's bad for you. But that's not a general 
uh, point of view for writers of, of faith. Um, certainly, uh, it's not the case for me, and I'm an ordained deacon, and I write literature of the imagination, no problem. So, um, I think I think it's an interesting question. It's an it's an important one to be teased out. There's a there's a follow up um, question comment, also by Papaya Salad, <laughs> uh, who says he's very curious about what I what I mean when I say Tolkien did not write allegory. I was told that. He saw Lord of the Rings as overtly Catholic. I have read that the books were patterned after Wagner's ring cycle with men representing the English, the elves representing the aristocracy, and the dwarves representing the Jews. Thank you very much for answering my first question. You're welcome. Okay, so um, you want to you want to say the line if you want. Uh, there's a yeah, bit in the foreword to Lord of the Rings on you know page lowercase Roman numeral one where uh, <laughs> Tol Tolkien says something to the effect of. Um, I have despised allegory uh, ever since I have grown old enough to detect its existence. Um, I prefer history, real or feigned. Um, there you go. <laughs> by which he, he wasn't, he means he's not trying to write a story um, that is a thinly veiled uh, metaphorical rehash of uh, something, you know, that already exists, right? Like, um, uh, and, that, and that's directly grappling with uh you know real world analogs one to one aslan is christ right, right. um literally and and so when he says history he's he's writing this this you know false feigned mythology of middle earth um that still explore that's still explicitly catholic in in its ethos right in the underpinning moral fabric but it's not relating a um a, a you know Jesus does not appear on screen, uh, so to speak, on the page. Uh, he, you know these things are not happening. He's not rearticulating an older, um, you know, a, an older story, very thinly veiled, right? I mean, obviously there are deeper bits there. Um, anyway, sorry, I I I, I, uh, I wrote an essay in fifth grade that was just that quote. Are you um, serious? Well, about and my teacher was like, "You win, but never do this again." Uh, <laughs> that's uh, awesome <laughs> it was my one uh uh yeah i got i only you only do that once um, yeah it's true but if you're if you're brazen enough to do that i'm sure you can get one password <laughs> <laughs> just the one um she was yeah, not having any that. of my any of my nonsense after that oh yeah yeah um if that's i mean i think i think it's a great answer to the question if i if i can tease anything else out is that i think that the um papaya salad your your reading of um of the sort of men being the english elves being aristocracy and the dwarves being jews it's way it's way too simplistic to describe the full richness of what tolkien is doing with the lord of the rings certainly some of the men's uh, cultures uh, are steeped in in old english mythology and yes tolkien was trying to write a kind of uh, english kalevala um he was very open about that but there's a lot of a lot of stuff going on there and it's not all christian some of it's pagan it's all i mean the whole the whole ethos of it is very very scandinavian in the in the in the deep melancholy of the end of history you know the kind of uh, the the end of the age of the elves it's not a happy thing it's not a good thing that the you know that that the men are the only ones that are going to be left so yeah in that sense allegory like um uh, like john bunyan that's what we mean by allegory or like c.s lewis where aslan equals jesus there's no such thing going on in the lord of the rings and if, yeah, if allegory there's is really low resolution no uh, sorry it's like really low resolution yes yes uh, compared yes. to what Tolkien was trying to do which was like build the whole world so like 
yeah, like Dwarvish, Dwarvish is in part based on Hebrew grammatically, right? Yeah. But that's like not all he's, he's not saying these are Jews, um, no matter how Peter Jackson dresses them up, um, you know, uh, in, in the movies, um, you know, but the, like there's a little bit of that in there, but he's doing, there's so much more. It's just, it's too, it's too straightforward a reading, I think. Yeah. And he he would he would call it something like applicability. I think I I remember that term coming out. So it's yeah, not, it's not so much allegory as it is applicability. Yes, there there is metaphor, but metaphor does not equal allegory, or not always. Um, and there's a follow up there uh, from Papaya Salad. I see. Thank you much for answering my question. Much appreciated. I look forward to re-listening to your answers to my first question again. Excellent. Um, there was another question. This is from Tim Andrews. Tim Andrews is actually responsible for this happening. He was the person who introduced your books to me and then insisted that I read them quickly, and I did. So um, Tim Tim uh, definitely gets a hearing from me, and he wants uh, he wants you to tease out the impact of religion. Uh, and the themes in the books, not just in the abstract, but how did religion actually influence the writing of these uh, books for you personally? So, the uh, I think the best the best thing I can say about that, without a more precise question, is uh, when I started writing Empire, I was in my Richard Dawkins phase, um, and as I realized it, I changed radically, and I think a lot of the distance between Young Hadrian and the older Hadrian is a response of that change. Because I used a lot of the narration because it was like the easiest way to edit it. Because I, you know, my my old sword, my my fencing instructor uh, said that the first rule of sword fighting is be lazy, and I think I started taking that to heart. Um, and 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 so in editing, I used a lot of ha older Hadrian's editorializing to scaffold um, his younger behaviors, his younger younger self's behavior um and and one of those ways is in his attitude or his religion um because and i think that the book has benefited from this because the chantry started out as this stupid mustache twirling yes. uh, straw man and yeah. they are but they have become self-consciously that i think yeah. in that uh they are now this very shallow um you know benny jesuit-esque posture yeah. they're not um, even trying very hard no well there's not a lot there um except that they they have a fist in that glove um and yeah and, and they are what a lot of people think religion is and what i'll be really interested to see is um adrian obviously is familiar with uh biblical stories and christian tradition for a for some reason um and part of that is going to be explored and i have a, a spin-off book coming out later this year called The Lesser Devil, which is, it's about as long as Sorcerer's Stone. It's a lot shorter, um, but it's about his brother, Crispin. And um, Crispin falls in with um, a bunch of museum Catholics uh, who, oh, who live on Delos and who help protect him during that book mm -hmm. uh, because there's some infighting. And uh, the, the priest in that village makes the relationship between the Chantry and actual religion pretty, pretty transparent. And so I'm I'm wondering how people will take that into account as things um, mm -hmm. as things go on. Um, that's that's really interesting. That's I'll, 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 I'm definitely going to read that book. Is that going to be published by Dot, or is that going to be something that you do yourself? Uh, it's going to be me uh, myself. The uh, Aaron, who is actually in the comment section here, did the typesetting for me. It's going to be uh, we're going to do a print version. We're going to do an ebook version for sure. 
but I'm waiting on recorded books to uh, tell me when to release it because we uh, negotiated an audio deal with them, but I want oh, to have it really. So Great. we're going to get the same reader uh, for those of you who've done the audiobook. Sam Rokin's going to. He's um, wonderful. He's, he's, he's so just good. Fantastic. He's um, fantastic. <laughs> and there's something funny about them getting a Death Eater to voice Hadrian too, which is because um, he was an extra. As a I didn't know that. That's cool. Yeah. Uh, very um, cool. Uh, and he's great. Um, I really, I'm really impressed with both him and, and I. I got to pick John Lee over in the UK. A huge John Lee fan. Yeah. Um, but so I'm interested to see. I'm interested to see the relationship there um, and how people are going to take that. Because I, I, I try not to take positions too much. Like obviously I do. But I want my characters to take positions, um, and some of them are mine, and some of them aren't. Um, oh, I, you know, I disagree with, uh, you know, uh, his father on a lot of issues. I disagree with, um, and I agree with his father on some issues. Um, you know, uh, and I disagree with Valka almost on everything except be nice to people. Um, and so I, I'm interested to see like what wins. Um, is I want my characters to do uh, to do their their battle in people's minds and then figure out what's going on because I, I don't want to I don't want to write allegory. Um, no, no. You, yeah, you you have to have it open ended enough that it's not obviously you being being a propagandist, right, which is yeah. which is what makes this kind of literature so great. Is that all you have to do is tell a story and the rest is just you know up to the you know uh, it's it's up to the story to do to do the powerful stuff. So it's great. <laughs> There's, yeah. a, there's a question here about um, a lot of the books center on the reality of virtue. This is Aaron Lazari's husband. How do you make that dramatically interesting? <laughs> oh, man, Edmund. Uh, he takes me to task for this frequently because Hadrian is bad at living up to his standards. Right. Um, he read book two and he was like, he's not a good person in this book. I'm sorry to tell you this. And he's right. He's, he's, he's not done yet. Um, he's going to go back in the oven he's half baked yeah. and and I think that that's I think that that's it right is that his narrator self is holding him to these standards right and he in the present is holding himself to these standards and he fails them right and and um, and I think that, that the tension between those is interesting right people think that Heroes need to be flawed, and that means they need to, you know, uh, they need to be an axe murderer or a pedophile or whatever, right? And like that's going to be interesting. No, it's no, it's not. No, it's, uh, it's going to be miserable and painful unless mm-hmm. it's, unless it's Hannibal Lecter, who is fascinating. Yeah, um, I really like those books. Um, mm-hmm. But and he's not the hero either, you know. Nope. Just everyone acts like he is. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> it's all Mads Mikkelsen's fault. Really? Um, yes. <laughs> He's compelling. What can you do? He's so good. <laughs> that show is amazing. But he, um, but I think that the, the right way to do flawed characters is, is like this, with this tension between where they are and where they, they could be. And, you know, he obviously will succeed in getting to where he should be in a lot of places, right? But like, like he quotes a lot of Stoic philosophers, and I quote a lot of Stoic philosophers in, um, in my regular life, because I'm that guy. And I am not stoic at all. I'm terrible at it. I think it would be a great idea um, if I could, you know, not be emotionally impacted by things that annoy me. But my check engine light came on today and I'm so mad, you know. Um, And so it would be great if I could live up to the standards I've I've set for myself. But 
maybe I'm more endearing failing, you know, I don't know. That's what I thought. Of myself. I mean, I, let's be honest. I think most of the Stoics outside of maybe Marcus Aurelius were probably not very nice people to be around. Probably not. No. Um, I feel All so right, bad. So, anyway. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm, I've, we've already answered a lot of the questions I was going to ask. So that's great. But, but I want to get to a few more. Um, sure. So what do you want your readers to do? So assume, let's just assume that your readers read everything that you've written. What is, what do you hope for that reader to do or to become? Um, in like their personal lives, I hope, I hope at minimum, and this is another place where I do align with Tolkien, that I got them out of whatever what was, whatever was oppressing them moment to moment for a little while. Um, you know, uh, having a little bit of an escape is good. Um, if there is something that, um, that helps them, you know, get through their, their life after they read it in some way. I had this really, someone sent me, uh, someone on Reddit was saying, that the scoliest aphorisms Hadrian repeats to himself, right? You know, rage is blindness. These, you know, very pat, simplistic sayings um, were helping him try to quit masturbating um, because he felt like wow. he was good. And that was amazing. You know, like if, you know, if he feels like he's got this big problem and he is using my book to try and get away from it, that's amazing. There's another, um, there's another guy uh, in Australia who was homeless Um and he grabbed the book from his school library and he was like, you know, living on campus. He'd been turned out of his apartment and it was like all he had on him for a while. And he was like, that really helped me those two weeks. That was amazing. I'm really glad that I could, uh, I could be there for him. Um, but I also hope too that there, are, and, and, and this is going to be showing my hand here. I hope there are a lot of people who are really disillusioned with the state of particularly space opera or uh, reasons of a certain film franchise. Um, who might be looking for something and, and I hope that I can find a lot. I hope I can be that for some people. Now I know it's, it's, you, you certainly work for me. So, well, Hey, that's one, you know, I, no, I, I just, I, I hope that the story does some good for someone in, in, in some way, right. Like even, even if it's just fun. Um, yeah, no, it's, you know, these are, you, these are not small things. You know, I think sometimes people assume that, just have a default position that stories can't have that kind of power to actually affect real change in everyday life and or they short change or they say it's not up to the author to worry about those things i disagree i think that's that's an important thing and i think that if we are if we as authors are able to do a little bit of that it's it's a good thing um well, there's a like, bunch of questions here in the in the comment section i wanted to get i, to. I will add real quick on that though it's like yeah, Jung yeah. Said, there's this great young quote and, and peterson quotes it a lot too where he says that modern people don't see god because they don't look low enough and we are you know uh we are what's the shakespeare insult base i don't remember base born and or i can't get it there's some shakespeare insult we're like we're, we're, we're clowns right we are tonight's entertainment and that's at the bottom of the barrel, right? You know, telling stories like this. And I, I, you know, these actors who go on stage with their, their little gold idols, right? And, and they're like, oh, I'm, you know, we tell you how to live. No, 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 no. Um, they're living already, right? Like we're giving them something. Um, right. Right. And, and like it's, it, you know, the Romans used to treat actors, uh, well, like prostitutes. Um, now I don't mm-hmm. want to go quite that far, but, you know, I'll take clown. Yeah. Uh, clown's yeah. okay. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, let's get to some of the questions in the comments here. Um, Robert Williams asks, how purposeful were the various character virtues amongst Hadrian's friends, enemies, and colleagues? Were were uh, were they always meant as a check to Hadrian? 
Um, yes. Um, I, I would need to pick a specific example, but um, one, well, I guess Valka is the obvious one because Valka, and I remember you mentioning this in your review, you didn't get them. Um, and, you know, sometimes people don't get their relationships when they start either, but um, Valka is sort of Hadrian's opposite in all sorts of ways. He's very sort of staid and traditional and, and, and masculine. Valka is um, almost very uh, like a 21st century person. Yeah, very and, much, very much so. and, and, and there are times, right, where Hadrian is, Hadrian is wrong because he, he's on his tracks and he's following you know, his sort of traditional way of, of doing this. There are places where even in a, in a, in a, if you take any virtue far enough, it's its own vice, right? Start yeah. sitting at the right hand, right? To, to reference Maximus. Mm -hmm. um, and Valka's there, even when I think she's wrong to, to knock Hadrian off his, off his rails a little bit. And all the characters are sort of like that because I don't want him to be right all the time. And now the, the first book, maybe I went too far, maybe he's wrong too much. But he, he, keeps, he keeps making these mistakes and he keeps running into walls for it. And I think that that is interesting. There are people who don't, I understand. They want to see a perfect hero um, who can speak every single language and learn the other one in two days. Um, and, you know, do, yes. all, do all of these things. And he's the best. And I totally get that. Um, I like those. I don't. <laughs> Um, it's it's sort of cathartic, I think, sometimes. Maybe, um, yeah, maybe. But I also think that setting up all these other characters who who he does run up against because they indicate things that he lacks, um, even if they're bad things. Because sometimes you know they're wrong, right? You know, um, Gilliam is not a good person, right? He, he represents this sort of corrupts you know institutional hierarchy because obviously institutions become corrupt and, and hierarchical i you know i would call myself pretty conservative but there's a group of villains in book three who are explicitly conservative houses um and, and that's because those virtues taken too far are vicious and and and, and there's there that's where the story is the story is between um you know, what he, you know, what elements, what traits he has and what traits he doesn't. And this is true of all the characters, I hope. Yeah, um, no, for, sure. for sure. I'm, I'm so prone to rambling, I apologize. No, no, you're um, fine. It's, it's really fascinating. No, and, and I have to say that there's always a, uh, I think a temptation for for a writer or a storyteller to make the foil the foil for the sake of of being the foil, not and not for the sake of being a character in in unto themselves, and that's not what happens here. Each one of the foils for Hadrian is still a completely fully formed character, but they're allowed to be a foil because we know that we are seeing this story on an epic scale because we have that narrator who is picking the specific. Episodes and specific people who interact with Hadrian for a specific reason, so it works really well. Uh, and I'm I'm really interested that you mentioned that the, that the uh, narrative structure was largely uh, a product of your editing because that that makes me feel very happy because <laughs> it means that you don't have to get it right the first time. No, you don't. Sometimes you just you know it's sometimes it's just a good edit <laughs> that fixes everything. My latest piece of writing advice is I was talking to this lady who emailed me and was asking about all of this. And I didn't even get the book right when I sold it. Like, it may not still be right, but like I completely changed it um, mm -hmm. after it was sold. So I was telling her, you know, like write a draft you think you can sell and then work with your editor to make it the draft you want it to be. Um, that's totally like you can play chess with this. It's fine. Um, 
know, yeah. and that's why oh, those yeah. things people don't tell you. Um, Tim Tim is continuing his questions uh, about now he wants to know uh, he wants you to elaborate on the on your comments about transhumanism and if we could have an elaboration of whether there's a potential parallel to all the dissents in the book especially book two. Oh man yeah so, so what I, is humanity what, is, what does it mean to be human this is something that my my new editor Katie has been on my case about because Hadrian never really gives you a straight definition because I keep thinking it's obvious right like Humanity is being human. Like it's one of those like red is red is red. Um, yes. And in the context of the universe, that means not adulterating that humanity by cutting parts of it off and replacing it with machine parts or, or rewriting your genetic code so much that you're not really a person. Which is of course fraught with Hadrian because he's the byproduct of of, of eugenic uh, manipulation. Yeah. Um, but. He's still within some sort of, um, you know, central finite curve. Uh, you know, he's not too changed, mm-hmm. um, and he hasn't changed himself. You know, especially willfully. Yes. Um, yes. Once you start going along, and you're like, "All right, I think I would be better with four arms and laser eyes." Well, maybe you shouldn't do that. You know, and this is what I like about Spider-Man Two so much, right? Is he plugs those arms into himself, and the AI that runs the robot arms changes his personality. It's exactly what would happen. Um, you see this. You see this with rats, right? You give them um, access to, um, uh, like, uh, I mean, animatronic arms, things like oh, that, oh. and it changes the way they try to solve problems. And they end up not being able to solve the problems without those things. It's kind of yeah, like people yeah. who. Um, well, it's kind of like when Plato was talking about the alphabet ruining people's ability to memorize, right? Because people who are uh, trying to downplay scaremongering about transhumanism are always like, well, you're already a cyborg. You wear glasses and you like, like, yeah, that's true. But those things are, you know, those are within, um, those, those are less extreme than uh, cutting my arms off and putting on forklift blades, you know, like, like that's not, that's not as bad. And it is certainly the case that people stopped memorizing the entire Iliad once they could write it down. Um, that did change people. Um, now you can make the case that that's a good change, and, I, and why I am not against writing by any means. But if I could also memorize the Iliad, that would be awesome. Um, you know, at best, I, I seem to be able to manage most of the Hamlet. Um, really? All the monologues I did for a project, and that was years ago too. So it's been a while. No, that's awesome. Awesome. Um, All right. Um, we're out of questions in the comment section. I had one or two left. Um, and I wanted to hear as long as you need. Yes. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask uh, if you would share some of your um, sort of unex- un- not very well known masterpieces of the literature of the imagination. Oh, lesser known ones. Um, well, I mentioned earlier, I'm a big Ian Banks fan. Now, he tends to come up from time to time, but I'm particularly fond of Use of Weapons, um, which does the sort of thing Christopher Nolan's Memento does, where it tells the story out of order and it meets in the middle um, at the beginning, and then it reaches towards the beginning and the end as it moves along. And that's, I think, really fascinating. He handles it really well. And it's it's a good way into his completely off-the-wall world-building that I think is is fascinating. Now, Banks was... He, he, I, I don't share a worldview with him at all, but I think um, he's sort of a post-scarcity, 
you know, anarcho-syndicalist, socialist, communist kind of guy. But he also tended to hit that philosophy with a hammer in every one of his books, which I really respect him for. Uh, and I think, I, I think makes them a lot stronger. Um, uh, I also, uh, I'm sure a lot of the people here will have read Kennical for Leibowitz, um, uh, the Walter Miller book, um, post-apocalyptic three sort of interlinked novellas about a Catholic abbey. Um, uh, one Hugo and I think like 63. Um, it's so, it's so good. Every time I reread it, I th- it's one of those books like Lord of the Rings that I think can't possibly be as good as I remember. And then I reread it and it is. Um, and more recently I've been reading a lot of Tim Powers who um, probably needs little introduction to some of these people too, but I really like stress of her regard. It's a vampire novel. Um, uh, aside from Dracula, I think it's the best vampire novel there is. Um, and after, you know, Twilight, the vampire really needed some rehabilitating. Um, as, and they are just amazing. Tim Powers, uh, really nice guy. Um, brilliant, brilliant writer, but he, uh, he does what he calls secret histories, where he'll write books set in some historical period. And he kind of, kind of uh, codified the modern genre of secret histories. And he won't break any of the established historical facts, but he will slip narratives into the cracks in order to have some sort of metaphysical explanation for what's going on. So this one uh, is about Byron and Keats and Shelley and their trouble with vampires because they all died mysteriously young. And um, and he wraps in the vampires are also connected to the muse legends, you know, the, the myths about uh, the muses and to the Nephilim from, uh, from the, uh, the book of Enoch. It's, it's so cool. Um, there's a, a detail in there. Um, for, like he'll do things. Um, like uh, the, I can't remember what the Latin word is. I'm sorry, everyone. The the tray you hold um, under someone's mouth when they're receiving the host, um, the the polished gold one. It's it's because the clergy was checking for reflections. Oh no! Uh, way. Things <laughs> like that, right? And it's just it's so cool. Uh, I love I love that book. Um, and I also read um, recently. I read uh, uh, Lord of the World by uh, Robert Hugh Benson. You know, early. Uh, science fiction writer, contemporary of H. G. Wells, hated H. G. Wells. Um, yeah, uh, and, yeah I, I'm not really either. I kind of like I kind of like War of the Worlds because it's like a it's such a groundbreaking little plot twist there at the end. But most of Wells, I'm not keen on. I always like Wells as a character and other things. I remember when he turned up in uh, Lois and Clark, the '90s Superman show, and I was like, oh, that's cool. <laughs> they made him <laughs> So um, Tim is getting very brave, and um, he's asking uh, a question that nobody should ask, which oh is no. um, he wants more comments from you about resurrection in book two. Now I'm going to I'm going to briefly uh, run out for a technical break, and but you give it a go, and um, I'll be right back. <laughs> okay, uh, let me look at the question. I didn't realize it had gone quite so far. And I remember you guys talking a little bit about this in the uh, in the review. And about whether or not, so I, I'll just come out and say it. Hadrian dies in book two, um, briefly. Uh, at the end, he gets his head chopped off, and then he gets better. And he's not quite the same. Uh, he lost an arm immediately before a head. He comes back with the other arm. Um, I don't know what that might symbolize. Um, but you're talking about whether or not that is, uh, that qualifies as resurrection, because there's clearly some time manipulation um, at play, and I've been thinking about that ever since. And I don't know 
if that would count as resurrection in in the you know in the biblical sense. And I don't think that I ever intended it to. I, I'm not sure. Because I've been thinking about this for a long time because Severian in Gene Wolfe is a Christ figure, and I don't know if I really want to, if I'm brave enough to go in that direction. And so I, I just I just don't know. But again, I don't know if it fits that definition, but I do think that well, I, did, I wanted to write initially. I didn't want to break any any walls of science, right? And then I decided that was silly. Um, so I wanted, you know, like my sh- starships still obey most laws of physics, like no faster than light. But all of this stuff, I think, because of the reason we're talking about with uh, literature of the imagination and, and, and myth and all these things, is more powerful than your sort of staid golden age Asimovian uh, science fiction. And part of my reason for doing this is um frustration with Jon Snow, whose resurrection is meaningless. And I suspect it would be meaningless. Um, because I obviously wrote this before season eight came out and confirmed that he accomplishes nothing with his new life. But it was it it's what I wanted Hadrian to be, if he's not exactly a Christ figure, is someone who steps outside the established sort of rationalist framework that especially the chantry and and the imperial sort of you know agnostic ruling class operates in so by performing this miracle or having this miracle performed on him um he clearly uh is categorically different from uh anything else that's happening um i don't want to i don't want to tell you obviously what the quiet is um or why they need him exactly? Although I think why is probably a little obvious. Um, don't don't say it. Don't say it. We want to figure it out. I, I won't. I won't. I won't. <laughs> but um, but the, the main reason I want to do it is because it does. It clearly it tells us that we're operating in a different story. Right? There's a guy who had this angry review a couple weeks ago where he was like, you know, this isn't space opera at all. I real once I realized it was epic fantasy in space. It was fine. I'm like, what do you think? Like, what do you think space opera is? It is, it is everything in space. Like, none of those science mechanisms are real. There is no hyperdrive. There is no warp drive. There's no, you know, lasers don't work like that. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, none of that's real either. It's just different magic. This is my frustration with Brandon Sanderson is, uh, you know, he's not writing magic. He's writing a different science. Yeah, um, that's true. And, and a lot of science fiction is just different magic, right? You know, time machines aren't real. Um, that doesn't, that's not going to work probably. Um, you know, and, and, and so when Hadrian, when people see this and only a small number of people saw him die and, and, mo- and they managed to, you know, it, he did so in such a way that it's not gotten out really, but the story has a little bit for those people. It's clued them in that this is not, even for the characters, it's not the story they thought they were in, right? And it, it, it's going to start opening things up. And book three, um, as Aaron will hear a test, um, continues to open things up um, as we move away from this simple science fiction story about an alien space war. There's a lot more going on. I do wonder what you guys think, though, about the, the time manipulation resurrection thing. Um, and where you think the where you think the category difference is? 
um, between that and, 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 you know, biblical resurrection. Yeah. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting question. And in, in the, in the universe that assuming your created world is one in which parallel realities are real in the, in the scientific sense of there being an infinite number of possible, possible realities based on the free will of the individuals who are choosing the realities. Um, it's an interesting kind of, uh, scientific explanation for I think what you could call perhaps resurrection in a, in a theological sense, but it's only one possible explanation, which is what um, and and it, it goes into it like it, and it's a reference to um, to the time lords and and the, uh, and that whole sort of <laughs> thing, which is great. Um, so I, I I don't I don't want to I don't want to get too deep into it. I don't, don't want to try to figure it out. I like I like to keep it the where it is right now, and I want to see where the story goes. Now, I, I don't like answers anyway, because yeah. I think questions are stronger. I learned that I learned that from Hamlet, because um, the ghost doesn't behave consistently. Um, it's it's only visible to Hamlet in its second appearance in Act 3. Everyone can see it in Act 1. Why? Um, and people have been asking why for 400 years, and that means they're talking about it. And, and, and so I want to leave a little bit of space, because if we had answers, there's no capital M mystery. And mystery is um mystery is what keeps stories i think alive um yeah and I so agree. i don't yeah and, and sometimes I'll, I'll write something and be like well let's see if they figure this out because i don't know um <laughs> maybe they'll figure it out for me <laughs> yeah sometimes you know they'll at least have an idea and, and I, I felt better when i learned that robert howard kind of did that too um he could never explain his writing choices um yeah, which is which I think is great. You know, maybe I'm channeling something. Um, maybe I am pulling it out of uh, out of my uh, my ass. I don't know. Um, <laughs> but and I know that's not a real vote of confidence. But I, I, I'm trying to write subconsciously yeah. um, because I think that there are things that I don't understand, and if I can try to get them on the page. With the mystery intact, then we can all not understand it together and maybe find something in it. And I think that... That's great. That's that's a great journey. <laughs> yeah. I, but and I, and that's why I do this for fun, right? Is, is, yeah. yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the, Robert Williams has a few more questions here. Uh, so sure. surrounding the quote resurrection, did you want your readers to question it, how it happened, the physical or mental changes, alongside with everything else happening at the time? Uh, there are so many potential branches, or did you want it to be simple? He was dead, now he's alive. Oh, no, I wanted you to ask questions. So I almost ended the book there, but then I realized, oh, wow. that, wasn't, I realized that wouldn't be possible, right? <laughs> and so the question of where to put it in the book was the, the big outlining question for Helen, because I write like 70-page outlines. I do oh, wow, one of those. Okay. <laughs> yeah, well, I didn't used to be. Empire was unplanned, and I think it suffered for it by comparison. Mm. Um, there wasn't an outline for it, especially that revision. Now, I think it was helped by the fact that I did that rewrite in three months, which uh, at the end of it, I literally could not speak. I had a friend yeah, come over. To crazy. <laughs> I had a friend come over to drop stuff off for a party. And I was like, oh, Marek, thanks. Come on, put it over on the table. You know, hugged him, put him out the door, right? Because uh, he was going to work and he was coming back after he was dropping stuff off. And then I realized as soon as he left that I had said none of this, right? Um, I had, I had had the conversation entirely in my head. I called him and was like, did I just sort of like grunt at you, accept the beer, and then push you out there? And he was like, yeah, it was very weird. 
And so that was really a really difficult process. And I don't recommend you do it. So I started outlining. And the problem with book two was where to put the resurrection. Uh-huh. And I put it as close to the end as possible so that it's still, if, if done right, it's making you ask a lot of these questions because addressing them is a books three through five concern. Um, and, and so if it were too early, I would have to answer them in the book. Um, and we can do it and, and get out. Yeah. And uh, I hope, and I hope Erin will back me up that, oh, she already did. Book three is great. And she said, okay, good. Erin is one of my beta readers, by the way. Um, okay. Yeah, I've got about half a dozen these days. And Erin and Aaron is, Aaron is the oldest of them all. Excellent. Um, no. Uh, but I hope that it bears out in, in, in the sequel. So, yeah, no, that was oh, right. I'm excited. I'm, I'm just mad that I have to wait so long to get it, but that's okay. I understand. <laughs> well, you know, I'll see what I can do about an advanced copy, shave a couple months off. Okay. I wasn't suggesting anything, but okay. no, I didn't think you were. If I thought you were, I wouldn't have done it. You know, so. Yeah, very fair. No, anyway, no. we've been doing this for a while there, Christopher. I think it's time for all of us to, to call it a night. Um, this was a lot of fun, and uh, um, I, I'm, I'm sure we're going to do it again. After book three, I think I'm going to have to just uh, have you over again and, and have it three hours instead of an hour and a half. <laughs> I would love to. Um, no, uh, let's do it. Thank you for listening. If you like what you've heard and you'd like to delve more deeply into this topic, check out my audio series on stories that unite in dark times, available exclusively at nicholaskotar.com forward slash stories that unite. And if you're hankering for more fantasy stories, check out my own Raven Sun epic fantasy series inspired by Russian fairy tales, available now in audio, paperback, and ebook formats. This show is produced by the wonderful Derek Cummins, and the beautiful title music is Lighthouse in the Rain, originally composed by Velislava Franta. You can find her work on SoundCloud.